Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Back in the days of Jesus, the primary use of salt was to preserve food. Uh, They didn't have refrigerators or freezers. They didn't know about canning. And so in order to keep their meat and other perishables from spoiling, they used salt. So salt is a, was, I should say, a precious commodity. Uh, You've probably heard about how Roman soldiers were sometimes paid with salt instead of money. Their monthly allowance was called a salarium. Uh, Salarium eventually made it into the English language's salary. And today, salt doesn't have as much value as it did back then. Uh, That's largely because we've discovered how to uh, can food, preserve food by canning it. And moreover, uh, virtually uh, every American household has a refrigerator and freezer in their home. And so we preserve our perishable foods without the use of salt. For us, the primary use of salt is as a condiment. Um, All those little tiny rocks comprised of sodium and chloride add flavor to our french fries. It's an inexpensive seasoning that is available in grocery stores and given away freely at every restaurant you dine at. So the primary use of salt has changed since Jesus' day. And this does not mean that the ancients didn't know or were unaware that salt is a good seasoning agent for their food. Our English word salad actually comes to us from the ancient practice of salting vegetable leaves. And the Apostle Paul was referring to the, the flavoring capacity of salt when he told the Colossians to let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt. And so they understood that salt is a condiment, but that wasn't the primary use of it. And when Jesus, so when Jesus said that Christians are the salt of the earth, we have to put ourselves in the mind frame of those who were hearing him, those who were sitting or standing on the mount listening to Jesus preach this sermon. He was not saying that, by saying that we are the salt of the earth, he was not saying that we Christians are here to add flavor to life. Uh, He is not saying that Christians are the people who spice things up and and make it more interesting, make it more palatable. Instead, Jesus was was appealing to Saul's property of of preservation. He was saying that Christians have a preserving effect upon the world. We are the salt that uh, are sent out into the world to keep it from decay. Uh, preserving it from further corruption and moral decline. Now, some of you are probably looking at your Bibles and saying, I get what you mean about salt being a preservative, but I think that Jesus is actually speaking about salt as a seasoning agent, as a condiment, because he warns about salt losing its flavor. Well, this is what you're thinking. Well, kudos for being a good Berean. Uh, It's noble that you are following along in your Bible. It's noble that you're comparing what you're hearing from the pulpit with what you're reading in the scriptures. Keep it up. That's a very responsible way of listening to sermons. 
Indeed, our English translations do steer us in the direction that Jesus is speaking of salt as a flavoring agent. The New King James reads, but if the salt loses its flavor, the ESV reads, but if the salt loses its taste, and the NASB reads, but if the salt has become tasteless, it's unfortunate that the translators chose to use these English words because the Greek word that is used in our text does not mean taste or flavor. In fact, it has absolutely nothing to do with taste and flavor. The first clue that our English translations are misleading is seen when we identify the parts of speech in this particular sentence fragment. Um, where, where's the noun in this sentence fragment? A noun is a person, place, or thing. So the noun is salt, right? Now, where's the verb in this sentence fragment? A verb describes the action. So the verb is loses, right? Or has lost, or has become, depending on the Bible version you're reading. So what then do we do with the words flavor, taste, and tasteless? What parts of speech are these? Now, from reading our English translations, you would probably conclude that they're adjectives. The, an adjective is a word that modifies or describes a noun or pronoun. Since flavor, taste, and tasteless describe salt, it's uh, in this sentence fragment, uh, it's a no-brainer that these words function as an adjective, right? Well... Yes and no. Yes, if this sentence fragment is written in English, then that would be accurate. But in Greek, there is no adjective in this sentence fragment. There's no adjective. These words uh, that we think are adjectives are actually part of the verb. Here's how the sentence is constructed in Greek. There's a conjunction at the beginning. There's an article before the noun which the ESV translators completely drop out of the text, there's a noun and there's a verb. But there's no adjective. Why is this important for us to know? Because there's nothing in this sentence fragment that modifies the noun. There's nothing in this sentence fragment that modifies the salt. There's only a verb which describes the action of the noun. The verb is a Greek word, moreno. And moreno literally means to be foolish or to play the fool. And this is where we get the English word moron. Uh, a, a moron is somebody who plays the fool. And that's not very far from what Jesus is uh, describing here in our sermon text. He's basically saying, but if the salt becomes a moron. Now, let me show you exactly what I mean by that. There are only three, place, three other places, four places total, one in our sermon text, and three other places in the New Testament where the word moreno is used. One of them is in Romans 1.22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's moreno. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image of uh, like corruptible man. The, uh, uh, another occurrence is in 1 Corinthians 1.20, 20, 
Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? There's that word moreno again, made foolish. In both of these verses, it's easy to see how the verb moreno describes the activity of becoming foolish. Somebody or something is becoming foolish. In Romans 1.22, it's people who are made foolish. In 1 Corinthians 1.20, it's the worldly wisdom that's made uh, foolish. And in our sermon text, Jesus is warning about what happens when the salt is made foolish. And that's exactly how we would read it if we were reading this in, in Greek, just like Matthew had written it. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes foolish, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The foolishness that Jesus is, is speaking about here is the foolishness of those Christians who do not walk according to the wisdom of God. When we walk according to the wisdom of God, then we function as agents of preservation in this world. And this is precisely what Jesus was affirming when he said, you are the salt of the earth. The rest of this verse is a warning about um, when we behave foolishly, how we become ineffective at being agents of preservation. And we learn from this, therefore, that we have a responsibility to walk in the wisdom of God. Because if we play the fool, we will lose our influence in the world and we'll no longer be able to preserve society from moral and spiritual degradation. So what does it mean to play the fool? If we pay attention to the context of our sermon text, we'll see that Jesus was describing what it means to walk as a Christian. This is at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, not the very beginning, there, there, there's a section before it, but this is early. Our sermon text is early in the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll notice that um, what Jesus has to say in this context has a lot to do with enduring hardship and persecution for walking in obedience to the Lord. Uh, immediately prior to our sermon text, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is that section of, or that portion of the sermon that we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, and so on. And as Jesus addresses, um, progresses through these Beatitudes, he tells us how being a disciple of him is going to come at a cost. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my sake. These beatitudes are as much a warning to those who follow Christ as they are an encouragement. They encourage us with the blessings that accompany each one of these beatitudes, but they also warn us of the hardships that will come with following Jesus Christ. For example, when you read Blessed Are the Peacemakers, you have to realize that in order to be a peacemaker, you first need to be in situations where there is no peace. You have to be in situations where there's strife and hostility. 
then you can become a peacemaker. And when you read, blessed are those who mourn, you have to realize that you're going to experience some grievous experiences as a disciple of Jesus. And when you read, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you have to realize that you're going to be in situations where unrighteousness prevails, where unrighteousness is the norm, and you are yearning, hungering, thirsty, that that would change from unrighteousness to righteousness. So in all these Beatitudes, Jesus is communicating to his followers that they should expect to suffer as his disciple. He goes on, you must be meek. Uh, You must hunger and thirst for righteousness. You must be merciful. You must be pure in heart. And Jesus gives nine descriptions of what the character of his disciples should look like. And realize these nine character traits are all a package deal. Right? Some, some of us may read Blessed Are the Meek and we think to ourselves, um, that's a good beatitude for so-and-so because so-and-so is a meek person. That one fits him. Uh, but meekness is not really my thing. Uh, I'm more of a hunger and thirst for righteousness kind of guy. That's my beatitude. Well, the truth is all nine of these beatitudes are, are, are intended to apply to every Christian. It's a package deal. It's, it's like the nine fruit of the Spirit that are listed in Galatians 5. You don't pick and choose which of the fruit of the Spirit you want in your life. Once again, that's a package deal. And so it is with the Beatitudes. They are an expression of what Christian character ought to look like. Every Christian needs to be poor in spirit. Every Christian needs to mourn righteously. Every Christian needs to be meek. Every Christian needs a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Every Christian needs to be merciful. Every Christian needs to be pure in heart. Every Christian needs to be a peacemaker. And every Christian needs to be willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And every Christian needs to be willing to be reviled. Do you know what reviled means? It means having all kinds of false accusations brought against you. Every Christian needs to be willing to steadfastly persevere in his uh, service and following of Jesus, even when people revile us, bringing all kinds of false accusations against us for Jesus' sake. And after declaring these nine characteristics of a Christian disciple, Jesus sums it up, sums up this beatitude portion of his sermon in verse 12. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then, without skipping a beat, right on the tail end of summing up this this beatitude section, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. That's the context in which we need to understand our sermon text. We can deduce from this, therefore, that to play the fool uh, is to fail to persevere in the Beatitudes. Uh, Or to put it slightly different, to the degree that a Christian's character fails to line up with these nine Beatitudes, to that degree the Christian fails to be an agent of preservation in the world. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke 14, and let's look at verse 34. I said a few minutes ago that there are a total of four passages in the New Testament where the verb moreno appears. Um, one of those four is our sermon text in, in Matthew 5.13. 
We already looked at two others that are from Romans 1.22 and Colossians 1.20. Now let's look at the fourth one, which is in Luke 14.34. Uh, and I'll read 34 and 35 together. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, moreno, again, we need to question that translation. Salt is good, but if the salt has become foolish, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this is essentially the same thing that Jesus said in our sermon text, but the context is a little bit different. If we back up to verse 26, we'll see that Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. But before he, fo- uh, but, but he, but he focuses on uh, different challenges we experience when we follow him, right? This is part of the cost of discipleship. And rather than talking about the nine Beatitudes, he talks about our willingness to forsake the relationships that prevent us from walking in obedience to Christ. Different emphasis here. Same concept, different emphasis. Let's, let's, let's read this, or at least follow along as I read it. Luke 14, beginning of verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then Jesus goes on to say, salt is good, but if the salt has become foolish, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear let him hear. And from the context, from this context, we learn that the foolish behavior that can prevent us from being effective agents of transformation and preservation uh, in this world is not prioritizing Jesus Christ in our lives. That's the, that's the emphasis here. It's, it's wanting to take the easy road rather than bearing your cross. It's wanting the approval of your family rather than the approval of Christ. It's wanting to fulfill the expectations of your father and mother or your brothers and sisters rather than the expectations of Jesus. And he even throws in there your own expectations. It's wanting to fulfill your own expectations rather than the expectations of Jesus. It's the person who blends in with the world and is not distinguishable from the pagans and heathens in the world. It's the person who is too timid to to stand up for righteousness when the world around him is advocating for something sinful. It's the person who goes along with a crowd, laughing at the dirty jokes, involved in the gossip, not defending the innocent, silently standing by as the Lord's name is blasphemed, all because he does not want to stand out, all because 
He does not want to be called a Jesus freak. That's the person who has lost his saltiness. That's the person who's playing the fool. What Jesus expects of you and me is that we consider the cost before we begin. He says, you're going to experience difficult trials when you follow me. So consider what you're getting into. Choose wisely. Because if you're one of those people who say you're going to follow me, and then you bail out when things get tough, then you're playing the fool. Brothers and sisters, where do you stand in this matter? If you're not willing to suffer for Jesus' sake, then you're going to be ineffective as an agent of preservation. On the other hand, if you are willing to suffer for Jesus' sake as his disciple, then you'll have the satisfaction of being used by God as an instrument for restraining evil and for transforming evil into righteousness. It comes down to your character. That's what's being taught here. It comes down to your character. By not laughing at the dirty joke, you set a standard of righteousness that's pleasing to God. But not only are your actions pleasing to God, you'll also have the effect of suppressing those types of jokes while in your presence in the future. The next time your coworkers want to chuckle about something obscene, they're going to remember your initial reaction to that, and they're going to think twice about sharing that joke in your presence. They may ridicule you behind your back. That's reviling for Christ's sake. We're blessed when they do that. But Jesus says, you know, this will only result in your blessing. He said, blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. If this is the type of character stand you're making. By not becoming involved in the gossip, you earn a reputation of trust. People will be more open with you. They'll be more willing to confide in you. They'll be more willing to share their private struggles with you because they know that you have a, a, a pattern, a conviction of safeguarding the secrets that people share with you. And so this will make you an agent of preservation and transformation. You will be given opportunities to speak the good news of Jesus Christ into the hearts of people who are in desperate and hurting situations because they come to you in private to share their needs and you step in to fill those needs with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you come to the defense of innocent people who are being oppressed, you become an agent of preservation. As you stand for biblical righteousness and justice, you show love and mercy to the oppressed while resisting the oppressor. That can take many, many forms, but there's, there's a lot of oppression in this world. There's a, there's a lot happening in our own communities. We need to be standing on behalf of those who are oppressed, opposing, resisting the oppressor. And when you voice your disapproval, when the name of the Lord is blasphemed, people will curtail their speech around you. They may continue to blaspheme God when you're not around, but when you're present, you'll be an agent of preservation. Have you ever had the experience where you were talking with strangers and as soon as you identified yourself as a Christian, the dialogue suddenly changed? That was you being the salt of the earth. 
Have you ever told somebody that you're a Christian and they responded with something like, you know, I, I thought you were, I, I, I figured you were, because I could tell when I was around you, there, there was something there that resonated. If you've had that type of experience, then that is you being the salt of the earth. And have you ever had the experience where somebody says, I don't know quite how to say this, but I see something going on inside of you that's appealing. You seem to always be at peace and you seem to always be content. I know your life is not exactly easy. You have many of the same challenges I have, but they don't seem to take the toll on you like they do on me. If you've ever had somebody say something like like that to you, that's because you are being the salt of the earth. It's in our sermon text, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you are becoming the salt of the earth or you need to go out and look for opportunities to be the salt of the earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And being the salt of the earth is a calling that God has placed upon every single Christian. By virtue of being a disciple of Christ, you are the salt of the earth. In principle, it's no different than what the Bible says about the husband being the head of his home. Every husband is the head of his home, period. It's not necessary uh, for him to do anything to establish himself in that role. God put him in that role. By virtue of becoming married, God made the husband the head of his home. Now, you'll hear men say something like, I don't think I'm really the head of my home. My wife doesn't respect my opinion. My children don't listen to me. I really can't say that I'm the head of my home. Well, the man who says this is a man who doesn't understand the position that God has placed him in. His status as the head of his home does not depend upon his performance or his wife's approval or his children's obedience. He's the head of his home because God put him in that position. God assigned him to that role. Now, it might be true that he's doing a lousy job in the, as the head of his home. It might be true that he has not earned the respect of his wife and children, but he's still the head of his home. And that's the point. God will hold the man accountable for how he functions as the head of the home, whether he's doing a good job or a bad job. That's where he's at. Well, the same is true for all Christians being the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. If you are a disciple of Christ, then you are the salt of the earth. So the question is not, am I the salt of the earth? But how salty am I? Are you walking in obedience to the Lord? Are you displaying the type of Christian character that's worthy of the gospel? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus and are you willing to pay it? Have you been crucified with Christ so that it's no longer you who lives, but Christ living in you? And the life which you now live in the flesh, do you live it by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you? Or do you live for yourself? 
Or do you live to please other people? Or do you follow the crowd? Do you like to fit in? Do people know that you can be pushed around, that you will cave in on your convictions? Do people know that if they put enough pressure on you, that they'll get their way, that you'll give up your religious ideals and you'll conform to the pressure? Do people feel comfortable behaving sinfully in your presence? That's a very telling question. That's a very strong indicator of how effective you are at being God's agent of preservation. If people feel comfortable behaving sinfully in your presence, then you have probably lost your saltiness. If your coworkers think it's okay to include you in their schemes to cheat your employer, then you have probably lost your saltiness. If the people you've lived next door to for five or 10 years find out that you're a Christian and they respond by saying, really? <laughs> then you've probably lost your saltiness. Brothers and sisters, if you think you may have lost your saltiness, you might be troubled by Jesus' description of the salt that has lost its saltiness. He said, it's good for nothing. It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now realize, Jesus is not talking about losing your salvation here. Not only does the Bible teach that you cannot lose your salvation, but that's not even what Jesus is referring to when he speaks about being thrown out and trampled underfoot. Rather, he's referring to the world's response to Christians who have lost their saltiness. He's responding to the world, he's referring to the world's response to Christians who have lost their saltiness. It's not all that different from what Jesus said later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 6, where he cautioned, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Right? In the case of uh, throwing pearls before swine, Jesus is warning against provoking people who have made it clear that they don't want to hear any more about the good news of Jesus Christ. Their rejection of the good news is described as them trampling under their feet. Well, so it is in, is in the response of unbelievers in our sermon text. Only Jesus is not saying that uh, the people in our sermon text are trampling God's truth under their feet because they don't want to hear it anymore. He's saying that they trampled under their feet because the Christian speaking God's truth to them has been playing the fool. The life and character of the Christian is so inconsistent with the words that are coming out of his mouth that the unbeliever just completely dismisses it all. Many years ago, I was working in the security industry and I was asked to submit a proposal for ins installing um, a bunch of cameras in a, a building complex. And as I was assessing the building complex, a security guard came rushing over to me and immediately began cursing at me. He thought that I didn't belong there and so he was reprimanding me with caustic words. After I told him who I was and that the owner had actually given me permission to be there, asked me to come there, the security guard settled down. Um, but I noticed in my conversation, if you can call it that, with this man, that uh, I noticed his name on his badge. Uh, I recognized the name because it was 
the brother of a friend that I went to church with. And so I related this story to my friend. I didn't tell him how rudely his brother had treated me. I just mentioned that I ran into his brother and, um, and I told him that he approached me as I was assessing this property. But my friend suspected what his brother had done without me even saying anything. And he, he, um, he suspected his brother had acted inappropriately. And so he asked me, did my brother lose his testimony? Did my brother lose his testimony? And you see, that security guard was a Christian. But when he was on the job, he didn't act like a Christian. My friend knew this about his brother. And my friend also knew that when a Christian acts like a pagan, he loses credibility in the sight of all. In other words, nobody pays attention to his testimony. He can tell all about the good news of Jesus Christ and how God's free grace transforms sinners into saints, but the manner of his life discredits everything he says. And if he tries to take a moral stand on an issue, everybody will be thinking in their mind, yeah, look who's talking. Why don't you try showing us rather than telling us? The phrase that my friend used when asking about his brother is a perfect description of this reality that Jesus is describing here. It's, it's losing one's testimony. That's what Jesus is talking about in our sermon text when he says uh, you know, that the salt has lost its flavor or a better translation, that the salt has, has become foolish. The unsalty salt is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. When we lose our testimony, brothers and sisters, we stop being agents of preservation and transformation. Why? Because nobody listens to a hypocrite. Nobody values the opinions of a person who says one thing with their mouth and another thing with their behavior. So if you find yourself in this situation, if you've played the fool and you've lost your testimony, is it possible to have your testimony restored? Can the unsalty salt be made salty again? Jesus speaks to this very question at the end of our sermon text, and he seems to imply that it cannot. But understand that Jesus is talking here not about one's salvation, and not even about so much about one's um, identity or, or reputation, but he's talking about hypocrisy. He's talking about the professing Christian who continues to discredit his testimony through sinful behavior. So long as the professing Christian continues in hypocrisy, no, he will never regain his testimony. That's the point Jesus makes about trampling underfoot. So long as a professing Christian continues in, in hypocrisy, he will never regain his testimony. But realize that Jesus has not finished preaching this sermon yet. This is the Sermon on the Mount. There's, there's plenty more to go. And he's going to go on to tell about how we should pray to our Heavenly Father for the forgiveness of our sins. And then he's going to go on to tell about everyone who asks of the Father will receive. For what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Brothers and sisters, the way you're to restore your testimony is through repentance. When you confess your sins and your life bears fruit worthy of repentance, then you will have a credible testimony. You will be an effective agent of preservation and transformation in this lost and sinful world. You are the salt, brothers and sisters. Through the Spirit who empowers you, you are the agents that God has ordained to proclaim the words of life to this corrupt and decaying world. But to be effective in this calling, you cannot be conformed to this world. You cannot be a hearer and not a doer. You cannot put your hand to the plow and then look back. You cannot prioritize your relationships with your family members above your relationship with Jesus. Rather, you must count the cost. You must suffer persecution for righteousness' sake. You must hunger and thirst for righteousness. You must be a peacemaker. You must be merciful and meek. You must be willing to be falsely accused for Jesus' sake, rejoicing and being exceedingly glad that your reward is not here on earth, it's in heaven, where nobody can take it away. Moth and rust don't destroy, thieves don't break in and steal. You, your mind is so trained upon your love for the Lord Jesus Christ and the precious uh, promises that he has given that you know with all certainty that the things that are happening to you here are temporary and what you have in store for you in heaven is eternal. And that's where your rewards are stored. To say it in one sentence... You will fulfill your calling as salt to this earth when you live as unashamed disciples of Jesus Christ. That is the sum total of it all. You will fulfill your calling as salt of this earth when you live as unashamed disciples of Jesus Christ. May the Lord's goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.